Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here for our church. And if you're, you're visiting with us today, thanks for coming. We're really glad to, to have you here with us. In recent weeks, I've been following the news stories about the theories of David Mead. Have any of you heard about this guy? He, he claims that on September 23rd, just over a month ago, the planet Jupiter passed through the birth canal of the constellation Virgo in the skies above Jerusalem. As far as I know, it's probably true. However, he goes on to say that apparently this was in fulfillment of prophecy from Revelation chapter 12, which describes signs in the heavens and a, a heavenly virgin, uh, these signs surrounding the coming of Christ. In addition, uh, Mr. Mead says that there's a mysterious planet in outer space called Nibiru, which is on a 3,600-year cycle that takes it through our solar system. This planet must have been the astronomical cause of Noah's flood almost 4,000 years ago, he says. And, and, and apparently in the next few months, Nibiru should pass within 14 million miles of Earth, which in astronomical proportions, 14 million miles is right next door. And so the, the gravitational pull of Nibiru will cause more hurricanes, earthquakes, and volcanic eruptions on Earth. It will draw huge solar flares from our sun, which will disrupt the electrical grid here on Earth. And so will begin the seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation, which heralds the end of life as we know it. Now, maybe some of you have heard some of these claims in the news. David Mead, he's getting a lot of press these days, not just on disregarded conspiracy theory sites, He's, he's showed up on major media outlets such as the Washington Post and the New York Times. What are we to make of such claims? Especially when the one making the claim presents scripture to support it. And he also claims that his primary message is simply one of spiritual preparedness. This is what he says. He wants people to be ready to meet Jesus and not be shocked by the coming events. And of course, he's got about a dozen self-published books for you to buy, but you don't have much time to read them. Buy them now so you can get all the facts you need to know before it's too late. Now, David Mead is not the first person in history to use end times scare tactics to create a following. I remember as a kid seeing a film called a Thief in the Night, which was produced in the, the late 70s, mid-70s. Uh, when I saw it in the, the early 80s, it gave me nightmares about missing the rapture and being left behind to suffer the whims of an evil world order. And we could trace more such theories all the way back through history to the first century to the city of Thessalonica. This morning, we continue our study of 2 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 2. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 575. 2 Thessalonians was a short letter written by an early Christian missionary to a community of believers living in this city of Thessalonica, which is in Greece. And for these people, hope has come on hard times. 
part of the reason they've lost hope is that they're suffering intense persecution for believing in Jesus. In chapter 1, which we studied last week, that gave them comfort to know that their affliction wouldn't last forever. Jesus will come back and deal with their problems at just the right time. But another reason for their loss of hope is because some teachers among them have been promoting conspiracy theories about the end times that have gotten folks all anxious. And it's this issue to which Paul turns in chapter 2. Paul's main point, which should be clear to us as we go through the passage, is simply, don't be alarmed about Jesus coming back. Don't be alarmed. And you can see in your outlines, he gives four reasons for this. That clear signs will precede Jesus' coming. Clear power will accompany Jesus' coming. Clear distinctions will separate truth from error. And then fourth, true comfort empowers present obedience. Let me pray, and then I'll read the passage and we'll dive in. Our Father in heaven, please help us not to be alarmed or shaken in mind about Jesus coming. Help us now as we study your word to find eternal comfort and good hope through your grace and your love and your patience with us. Pray that you would help us now as we read this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word 
or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and every good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So the first point Paul makes is that clear signs will precede Jesus' coming. In verse 1, we should see that Paul assumes two things about the future. He assumes that Jesus is coming and that we will be gathered to him. And these two points summarize the Christian's hope for the future. Jesus is coming and we will be gathered to him. But Paul goes on in verse 2 to state his chief concern concerning these things. Concerning the fact that Jesus is coming and we will be gathered to him, don't be shaken in mind or alarmed by any person or spirit or any other communication that says that the day of the Lord has come. That day of his coming and our being gathered to him, that day of judgment. Verse 3, he says, don't be deceived in any way because... He will now explain some clear signs that must precede Jesus' coming. Don't be deceived in any way, because that day will not come unless two things happen first. In verse 3, these are clear signs to watch for. He says the rebellion must come first, and then the men of lawlessness must be revealed. So we have a rebellion, and we have a revelation of a guy who will come, who will oppose all religion, verse 4, and he will exalt himself as a God to be worshipped. And then Paul goes on and gives us two more signs to watch for, bringing it up to four signs. Not just the rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawless, the lawless one, but then third, in verse 6, he says there's also a restraint on lawlessness, that takes the form of both a force or a principle in verse 6, the thing that restrains, but also in verse 7, it's a person, he who now restrains. That's the third sign is this restraint. But then fourth, in verse 7, is a removal of the restraint that will then allow the mystery of lawlessness to run rampant. So Paul gives us four clear signs that must take place before the day of the Lord, before the second coming of Christ and the final judgment will come. We have the rebellion, the revelation of the lawless one, the restrainer, and the removal of the restrainer. So much so good. Okay? This is very, very clear. We've got one huge problem, one earth-shattering problem in interpreting this passage which is that Paul gives us these four very, very clear signs, but he never explains what they mean. Instead, Paul assumes that the Thessalonian Christians to whom he's writing, they already know what he is talking about. Look again at verses 5 and 6. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. This chapter is a really important chapter for us, 
because it helps us in a major way understand how to better read and understand the Bible. And the way this chapter helps us with this is because this chapter reminds us with incredible flair and pizzazz that though the Bible was written for us, the Bible was not written to us. The golden rule of Bible study is that we must work to understand what the original author meant to communicate to his original audience. We cannot just make up our own meaning for our own time. And so we read all these exciting details in verses 1 through 7 about the end times. But let's be honest, we are left flat-footed and excluded from the most important information that would help us to connect these dots. And so we're left to guess and speculate. And accordingly, this passage has been used, this very passage has been used for centuries, contrary to its stated purpose, to create alarm among those who love the Lord Jesus. Because remember, the whole point is, don't Be alarmed. Please bear with me for a lengthy but important quote from commentator John R.W. Stott, because he explains this really well. To help you follow along, it will be on the, the screen. Stott explains the history of how this passage, this passage has been used. In the post apostolic centuries of the church, Christians have practiced considerable ingenuity in trying to identify one of their contemporaries as the man of lawlessness. After the demise of the persecuting emperors and the conversion of Constantine, the Roman emperor no longer seemed a suitable candidate. At first, one or other of the Vandal leaders who raided Roman provinces and finally sacked Rome in AD 455, they looked anti-Christian enough to be anti-Christ. In the Middle Ages, especially at the time of the Crusades, the Western Church identified the man of lawlessness as Muhammad because he had stolen the Christian holy places and caused many Eastern Christians to commit apostasy. That's referring to the rebellion that Paul talked about in verse 3. Towards the end of the Middle Ages, some of the Franciscans saw in the corrupt popes and their proud pretensions an expression of the one who would exalt himself and set himself up in God's sanctuary, while at the beginning of the 13th century, Emperor Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX found satisfaction in calling each other the Antichrist. The early reformers, Wycliffe in England, the Valdensians in Italy, and John Huss in Bohemia, all referred the prophecy to the Pope, or rather to particular popes, on account of their corruption, whereas with greater exegetical insight, the 16th century reformers, including Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli on the continent, Knox in Scotland, and Cranmer in England, they believed that the papacy itself was antichrist. The Roman Catholic leaders of the Counter-Reformation then returned the compliment by identifying Luther as the man of sin. The identification of the pope as antichrist continued at least into the 17th century. The Westminster Confession of 1646, for example, affirms that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church and not the Pope, who is rather 
that man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. During the last two centuries, political rather than religious leaders have been put forward as possible antichrists. Candidates have included Napoleon Bonaparte because of his arrogant absolutism, Napoleon III, Kaiser Wilhelm, Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin, and certainly strong elements of both godlessness and lawlessness have been seen in these men. End quote. Thank you, John Stott. So, I strongly advise against trying to get more out of these verses than the Lord wanted us to get from them. The Lord's clear message for us and for his people of all time is this. Don't be alarmed about Jesus' coming and our being gathered together to him. His roundabout message for us today, I think, is don't get too worked up trying to identify the exact markers and signs of the end. Paul gave more to the Thessalonians in person than the Lord wanted him to give to us in writing. But have no fear. There are some things much clearer and more important to come later in this chapter. But to conclude this point, I'm left standing arm in arm with the great church father, Augustine, who wrote about this passage in his important work, The City of God. I frankly confess, I do not know what he means. So what can we know? What can we know? Point number two. Clear power will accompany Jesus' coming. In verse eight, regardless of who the lawless one is, there is really not much to alarm those who love the Lord Jesus. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Clear power will accompany Jesus' coming. The lawless one will fall when Jesus takes a breath. In fact, he will be brought to nothing. So you don't need to worry about how much power a future world order might exert. You don't need to feel the pressure to conform. You don't need to subscribe to any social system or marker in order to survive. And you don't need to fear what this lawless one might do. Because he will be like a domino set on end to be part of a grand show. The only purpose for his existence is to get knocked down. How does this apply? Don't be alarmed about Jesus' coming. He'll take care of everything. Now that may have been the shortest point I've ever preached in a sermon. But I must move on. Number three. Clear distinctions will separate truth from deception. Verses 9 through 15 get us to the real heart of this passage. In these verses, Paul describes two kinds of people. Those aligned with the truth and those who are susceptible to deception. And using Paul's language, we could label them the beloved and the deluded. And understanding these two peoples, or these two courses of life, uh, this is the most critical part of the passage to understand, because if you understand this, 
you will really get why Jesus' coming should not be alarming. And if you don't understand this, you will be one of those caught up in all the deception. You will be shocked and alarmed at what takes place in the future, and you will suffer incredible loss. So please consider these tracks with me. This letter is, is still one of Paul's earliest letters, and all of his most amazing and his rich theology is actually captured right here in seed form. He'll develop it more in later letters. But don't miss it captured here. Now, as I talk about these tracks, I'm going to put the, the relevant paragraph up there for you. Just so you know, I'm, I'm going to be jumping around from phrase to phrase because Paul's talking about things thematically. And I want, to, I want to outline tracks of life. So I'm going to try to spell it out for you chronologically, what Paul is saying here. So track number one in verses 9 to 12 is the track of the deluded. People on this track start in verse 12 by simply not believing the truth. They did not believe the truth, the end of verse 12. And the reason that they don't believe the truth, goes on to say, is because they have pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, their problem with the truth is not primarily intellectual, but it's volitional. They don't want the truth to be true, because if the truth were true, it would mean they would have to give up their anger or their self-assurance or their lewd lifestyle or their quest for riches or honor or fame. They love, they take pleasure in unrighteousness. So they love their unrighteousness, and because of that, they don't believe the truth. Therefore, if we follow this track chronologically, Verse 10 says that they go as far as to refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And why would they do that? Because saved? Why should I be saved? I love my lifestyle. I love my circumstances. I don't want to lose that. There's nothing to be saved from. And so they refuse to love the truth. Therefore, in verse 9, when the lawless one eventually appears in league with Satan... And he exhibits all power and false signs and wonders. These people buy it. They buy it because they want what is false to be true because it means they won't have to change. We follow that course of their life. They are deceived because they want to be. And the result, verse 9, is that they are perishing. They keep hurting themselves because God made the world to work in such a way that immorality, money, and power would always be unsatisfying and that they would destroy us. People keep perishing from these things, but still they won't give them up. Therefore, verse 11, God sends them a strong delusion. This is akin to in the book of Exodus when God hardens Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh had begun hardening it himself. And Paul will explain this in other letters. He'll unpack this even more. That God hands people over to their sin. God gives them what they want. He sends them a strong delusion. This is not a blessing for you to get what you want. This is how God executes his wrath on you. He gives you what you want so that you will be destroyed by it. And the final result is in verse 11, that they continue believing what is false, and they end up, verse 12, condemned. They never find the life they're looking for. They never unlock the truth. They find judgment, 
destruction, guilt, and condemnation. Chapter 1 described it as the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So here's the first track, the way of the deluded. In summary, they love unrighteousness, and so they refuse the truth. And therefore, they're easily deceived by satanic schemers, and they get handed over to increased delusion by God himself, and then they suffer the penalty of eternal condemnation. If you don't yet love Jesus or walk with him, please understand this is your path. I'm not pleased with this fact. I'm begging you, please, to see that there's a better way. There's a way that will prove far more satisfying to you, more in line with the truth, more honoring to God. And so that is the track of the deluded. The next paragraph, we see the track of the beloved in verses 13 and 14. Again, I'll do the same thing. I'll try to walk this through chronologically, even though Paul addresses it thematically. These people begin in verse 13 as beloved by the Lord. Brothers, beloved by the Lord. And because God loved them, he chose them. They hear the gospel. Because he chose them, they hear the gospel Verse 14, they hear the message about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to pay for our sin. And they believe it's truth. Verse 13, they believe the truth. And because they believe the truth, verse 13, they are saved from their sin. And God's own spirit sanctifies them, which means to make them, change them, to make them more like Jesus. And in the end, verse 14, they obtain the glory of their Lord Jesus Christ. They get to share in his honor and his rule. He honors them. He praises them for God's work in them, and he welcomes them to a seat at his table. So here is an outline of the Christian life for you. It begins in eternity past with God's love and choice. It works itself out in the present when we hear the gospel and believe it. And it moves into the future as we change to become like Jesus and eventually obtain his glory. How does all this apply? These two tracks. Friends, first application, don't be alarmed about Jesus' coming. And don't be alarmed if you look different from everyone else around you and if the world is going a certain way and you need to go in a different direction. Don't worry. You are not missing out. If God loves you, you will lose all kinds of things that you love, things that the deluded hold on to, but you will gain much greater glory in the end. And let me give you a second application here. How do you know, how do you walk the path of the beloved instead of the path of the deluded? And how do you know you're on the right path? Look at where Paul lands his application in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So Paul says we must have a two-part strategy for the Christian life. Here's how to walk the path of the beloved. You stand firm and you hold tight. Those are his two imperatives here. Stand firm and hold tight. The image here is something like riding the catabus from the far reaches of 
the county all the way into the center of campus. When, especially when the hour is busy and the bus is beyond capacity. You're stuck without a seat, but they have those really nice bars anchored into the frame. And so you just need to find a little spot with firm footing and hold tight to that bar. Stand firm and you hold tight and that bus will bounce and tilt with every hill, whether you're coming from Park Forest or Lamont or Orchard Park, wherever. Life will be a challenge and you won't be able to anticipate every bump, but if you stand firm and hold tight, you'll do just fine. As a Christian, what do you stand on? Well, he said it in the previous paragraph. You stand firm on the love of God and the work of his spirit that was just described. You stand firm on what God is doing. And what do you hold tight to? He says that right here. Hold tight to the traditions that you were taught by us. It's the traditions taught by the apostles. And the word traditions here does not refer to a series of behaviors or rituals, or standard operating procedures, the way we normally use the word traditions. He's referring to a set of beliefs handed down from the apostles. What he's been talking about, the message about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the need for faith, love, and hope in the church, and the truth about the future and how Jesus will come back to make everything right someday. Do not let these things go. Hold tight to this set of beliefs. So we must not be alarmed about Jesus' coming because clear signs will precede it and because clear power will accompany it and because clear distinctions separate the beloved from the deluded. Paul now closes his chapter with one last wish. True comfort empowers present obedience, verses 16 and 17. Paul ends with a statement that's almost but not quite a prayer. It's more like him letting us know what, what, what his, his heart for us, his heart for these people he's writing to. Here's what he most wishes for them at this point in light of these issues and in light of his desire for them not to be alarmed about Jesus' coming. Paul has a wish for Jesus Christ and God the Father. Interestingly, it's, this is one of the rare times where he puts Jesus first in that order. This is the God who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. The very thing that the Thessalonians are struggling with, the very thing which they need to regain is hope. They are alarmed and they're shaken by the things they've heard, but the love of God is the foundation of our comfort and our hope. And Paul wishes comfort for their hearts in verse 17, and he wants Jesus and his Father to establish those hearts in every good work and word. The idea is this. When you understand the love of God from eternity past, and you understand the truth about the future, so as not to be alarmed by it, Jesus' coming is something for his family not to be alarmed at, and you get the, what happened in the way past, and you understand what's happening in the way future, then your present will be characterized by both comfort and stability. God will comfort your heart and he will establish it in every good work and word. Your present will be characterized by comfort and stability. 
the truth about both what happened way back then and what will happen in a time yet to come, those truths drive your sanity and your well-being in the here and now. These truths aren't just exercises in theological study, and they're not roadmaps to satisfy the recesses of our curiosity. They are bread and water to the soul. These truths are like gas in the tank. They're like carbohydrates in the body. I could unpack a wealth of applications surrounding what Paul means here by being established in every good work and word, but I'll have to wait until next week. Because those two phrases serve as the outline for chapter 3. That's what he goes on to unpack for us. So if you'd like to know more about what it means to live now as people who trust what happened way back then and who are people who are not alarmed by what is yet to come, you'll either have to read ahead or come back next week. And we'll see chapter 3. But for now, please don't let anyone deceive you. And don't ever become alarmed for the future. Don't ever be afraid about Jesus' return. Unless you don't yet believe the truth and you love unrighteousness. Then you have every reason to be alarmed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for revealing to us your plan for the future and your love from the past. Please shape us in the present. Help us to find great comfort and stability as we consider these truths about how you have loved us and about how Jesus is coming back to make everything right. Help us, Lord, to walk the path of the beloved and to by every means possible, avoid the path of the deluded. Please empower us by your spirit. Make us more like Jesus. Our hope is not in ourselves. It is in you, Lord Jesus. You died and rose for us to make us your people. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.